and welcome to the second lecture of week three of Rare Book School 1997. Peter Graham, who's Associate University Librarian at Rutgers, has been, re been responsible for some of the best titles for Book Arts Press lectures that I have ever been able to come up with. And he had one for his own, which I thought was side-splitting, but he wouldn't let me use it. He suggested as a, his first title for tonight's lecture, Derrida, Deconstruction, and the Book. <laughs> it came out in a serious speak as Postmodernism and the Barriers to Literary Preservation library preservation. Choose one. Peter Graham. Again. If Terry thinks I'm going to give a talk below the Mason-Dixon line or anywhere else with a title like that, he's nuts. Is this somebody else's water or is this mine? One never knows. It's from the first lecture in week three of Rare Book School. They never clean out the rotunda between, do they? I gave a talk in 1994 here entitled, with a title that was actually uh, should have been used for tonight's talk, and that was Electrons as Enemies of Rare Book Librarians. Uh, I ended up giving a talk that talked about electrons as friends of rare book librarians. Not loud enough? Speak, up. Speak to Vincent. I ended up talking about electrons as friends of rare book librarians. My topic tonight is the barrier to library preservation presented by some streams of postmodern thought and what are our organizational and professional responsibilities in the light of this increasingly persuasive social critique. The distinctive role of research libraries remains in many ways the same in the electronic environment as in the print environment. In United States library schools, we take in with our bibliographer's milk the famous library paradigm. We acquire information we organize information, we make it available, and we preserve it. For research libraries, digital information has imposed two significant changes on the way we carry out the research library mission, uh, with repercussions even on the way we handle the print material we have been used to. The first change is in collection development patterns, about which I'm not going to say very much. There are new relations to be worked out between selection and acquisition and the continuing responsibility of research libraries. They can be entirely separate activities in the print world. We select a book, we acquire it, and we preserve it. Each is decision separated in time. In the electronic world, these actions need to be thought of as intimately associated. That is, the act of selection of a digital resource may become the research library's statement of responsibility for the resource, even though it may not be owned. The many implications of the bonding of selection and preservation are not, however, my topic today. The preservation role is the distinguishing activity of the research library because we make information available in the future as well as in the present. And the second major change in the digital research library role is in the preservation activities themselves. But what is it that we in research libraries preserve? 
Let's answer this question by noting the origins of the bookish culture that we have inherited. Then we can discuss some of the cultural challenges to this bookish culture, which with the technical problems create significant barriers to our ability to preserve it. In 1993, Ivan Illich published In the Vineyard of the Text. It's a somewhat self-indulgent book, for Illich is a bit in love with his own footnotes, but still, it's a useful summary of the movement in medieval Europe from the word to the text. Illich describes the origins of the bookish period of Western European culture from about 1250 to the present, and he claims, as do many others, that it is now ending. He apparently was stimulated into writing his book by fear of losing bookish culture to the computer screen a fear he shares with George Steiner and many other critics, though not with me, as you shall hear. Bookishness, by the way, appears to be a coinage of Steiner's, and very broadly speaking means the way we have used and read books from the medieval period to the present when the screen and its usages become prominent. Illich is trying to describe how Western bookish culture came into being in the golden age of the schoolmen, that is, about the 12th to 13th century. Monastic reading and learning of the early Middle Ages, directed at attaining wisdom and illumination through repeated study of canonical works, was superseded by scholastic reading and learning. Monastic reading was characterized by vocalization, and the hum of monks reading aloud would have been a familiar sound. Monastic reading was also characterized by the use of works as received authorities, that is, as the word. These words were read straight through and memorized and were considered a primary source of wisdom and illumination. Illumination to an early monk meant the inward elevation of the soul toward God, away from the darkness experienced by Adam and Eve when they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. It did not mean the sense of internal elucidation that we find when understanding an important new idea. For the purpose of once becoming illuminated, the book was seen as a continuous text, rather like a landscape or garden or a vineyard to be traversed. Illich's title in the vineyard of the text. The manuscript books of this time physically reflected this understanding as they were written on the page, typically with little or no word spacing, no paragraphing, no highlighting, and no internal guides. The incipit and the explicit at the beginning and the end were all one had for identification of a work, rather like the beginning and ending notes of a long musical piece. Indeed, the work was to be read through and absorbed as an entire piece, rather as we now listen to a complete symphony or sonata. The movement towards scholasticism comes to a fullness in about the 12th to 13th centuries. The scholiast moved from treating works simply as received authorities, the word, to considering them as texts to be studied. Disputatio was added to lectio. It's this scholastic approach to texts that leads George Steiner to speak of the bookishness that he says we still practice today. The earliest schoolmen included Peter Abelard, who compiled the Sic et Non, and Gratian of Bologna, who compiled the Decretus, or the Concordance of Discordant Canons. From these titles alone, Sic et Non and the Concordance of Discordant Canons, it's evident that these authors are now comparing texts rather than simply accepting them. They have begun the collation of seeming contradictories, the first step toward their rationalization rather than acceptance. I won't tease you further with discussion of scholastic argument in spite of the eager faces I see upturned before me, but note that the forms manuscripts take from about the 12th century become very exciting from a bibliographical point of view, as many of you know from the work of Richard and Mary Rouse. Concordances appear, along with alphabetic indexes, tables of contents, lining and red for emphasis, underlining, paragraphing, titling of chapters, and different letter sizes. Marginal references now begin to appear in quantity. All are aids to study and tools for treating the work as a text rather than as an object. In addition, the monks began reading silently to themselves. As Illich says, the schoolmen no longer approached the book as a vineyard, a garden, or a landscape. 
the book connoted, connoted for them instead the treasury, the mine, the storage room. In 1973, the German scholar Rolf Engelsing developed the idea of the Leser Revolution, the reading revolution. Engelsing described a movement in 18th century Germany from what he called intensive reading to extensive reading. From the intensive reading of a few standard texts, such as the Bible, readers moved to extensive reading of large quantities of material, such as newspapers, broadsides, journals, and sermons. David Hall has found much the same thing happening in 17th century America. Other scholars are skeptical that the change was so marked, but the descriptors of intensive and extensive have become useful. It appears that there was also in the 12th and the 13th centuries a movement from intensive reading of relatively few texts to more ex extensive critical reading of multiple texts. This may in fact be a constant feature of cultural change. Often today we hear that computerized reading is fragmentary and that hypertexts prevent thoughtful narrative reading. In a recent issue on libraries of Daedalus from the National Academy, an article by a law student described his transition into law school and work with electronic texts. Jamie Metzel writes, and I quote, the computer facilitated ability to search so quickly and directly for so precise a piece of information seems inherently threatening to the idea of the book as an integrated whole. I feel myself being conditioned to think of articles and books less as integrated narratives and more as groupings of small bits of information that can be accessed independently, end quote. Jamie Metzl may be right and this may be true, but having a historical perspective on reading revolutions of different times and social classes helps keep the complaint in perspective. It's likely that once again we are adding an arrow to our quiver rather than removing one. In 1140, Hugh of St. Victor, in his pre-scholastic pre treatise on reading, insists on patience and leisurely tasting of what can be found on the page. At almost the same time, the scholastic Peter of Lombard wants to give his pupils all the help he can to locate with ease and speed what they want to read in the book. Lombard's approach, helping the Jamie Metzels of the 12th century, is the bookishness that Steiner talks about, and our bookish culture is what we are used to today, I suspect even in much of the electronic environment. It's what many of us want to preserve, again, even in the electronic environment. If we are at the end of a bookish culture, and I'm not sure that we are, what comes next? Let's, let's look at a forecast of our scholarly future from someone who might be considered a friend, and then let's consider some other postmodernists. Let me start with Stanley Chodorow, our friend. Stanley Chodorow is a scholar of medieval canon law, and he is also now the provost of the University of Pennsylvania. When provosts talk, research librarians listen. In the December issue of the newsletter of the Association of Research Libraries, he wrote an article on what he sees coming entitled The Medieval Future of the Intellectual Culture, Scholars and Librarians in the Age of the Electron. Chodorow's thesis is that electronic scholarship will lose identity though not significance. He expects electronic scholarship to be difficult to identify or attribute, and that it will be so fluid as to be authorless in the traditional sense. Let me quote a couple of paragraphs. The new medium, he says, will change scholarly discourse, and we will retrace our steps to the intellectual culture of the Middle Ages. Works of scholarship produced in and through the electronic medium will have the same fluidity, the same seamless growth and alteration, and the same de-emphasis of authorship as medieval works had. A work of scholarship mounted on the internet will belong to the field it serves and will be improved by many of its users. Scholar users will add to the work, annotate it and correct it, and share it with those with whom they are working." End quote. He goes on, in the fluid world of the electron, the body of scholarship in a field may become a continuous stream, the later work modifying, 
the older, and all of it available to the reader in a single database or series of linked databases. The prospect is exciting, end quote. I'm reminded of John Dean, whom some of you may remember. What an exciting prospect. Well, some of us are more reserved. Chodorow reminds me of Professor Harvey Wheeler at the University of Southern California, whom I first ran into at a library automation conference in 1988. He gave a talk there on what he called the dynamic document. He advocated a document which could reflect one's changes of mind and view over time. One could publish a document electronically and change one's mind, then go change the document and make it available in the revised form. The implications of this for the continuity of scholarly argument didn't seem to disturb him at all. Chodorow's predictions of new scholarly forms give us both insight and pause. We can forgive him overstating the case a bit in the interest of making some very serious points, but he does overstate the case, for example, in making a monad out of scholarship's present and future variety. But he raises a question of considerable importance to us as librarians when he suggests that networked intellectual discussions will be lost when the discussion takes a break. He says, quote, so long as the discourse is lively, scholars and librarians who serve them will port it from system to system, unquote. And he says, who will use up space and effort keeping a database alive during periods of intellectual downtime? The concept of intellectual downtime is one that I really like. The first thought that comes to mind is of Irish monks, but let's set them aside for the moment. Who will do this? Librarians will, or should, for that's our job. Using principles of collection, development, and preservation as we have for the last past centuries or, or two. Who, after all, is still keeping Patrologia Menia alive and the Church Fathers at great expense from Charles Chadwick Healy during what can only be called the intellectual downtime of Dr. Chodorow's field, canon law? Chodorow and Harvey Wheeler argue that scholarly discourse will become more fluid and less identifiable. What, but they leave out of their argument what the schoolmen taught us in the later Middle Ages the continuing value of fixed text and scholarly discourse, the usefulness of chapter and verse, the importance of a solid foundation of reference points on which to ground a continuing discussion, and the ability of a professional cast to aid scholars in confirming elements of their debate, that is, the work of librarians. Chatterow's arguments about the fluidity of discourse and the lack of authorial identification, in fact, are current propositions of postmodernist thought. Postmodernism is a large, variously defined term that serves as a rubric for a number of recent critical theories. It is a remarkable coincidence in the history of ideas that the critical theory in the past several decades has paralleled the rise of computing. In both cases, they cause our assumptions about the substantiality of text to be severely questioned. Most of us have at least a popular awareness of the postmodernist claim for the lack of an author of a work, but there's, of course, a good deal more to it than that. Let me talk about some of the characteristics of postmodernism, at least perhaps, say, in terms of fiction. I was talking with uh, someone earlier, Bob, some earlier today about postmodernism and architecture, and some of the same things uh, carry there. Uh, technically, as well as thematically, postmodernism demonstrates and is interested in the surfacing of structure and device, not underlying structures, not form following function, but the surface rather than the structure. It shifts many of the fictional values in fiction, uh, the fictional values most of us have been become accustomed to. For example, it makes use of subtlety more than drama, concision more than expansion, parody more than earnestness, artfulness more than verisimilitude, intellection more than entertainment. Postmodernism is concerned less with social classes than with individuals, and structurally less with individual growth and character development and more with a pattern of ideas. Instead of piety or certainty or emotional depth, 
we get humor, irony, intellectual complexity, and technical tours de force. Uh, examples of the tours de force that come to my mind are uh, Italo Calvino's works, Dr. Rowe, uh, Thomas Pynchon, uh, and a number of other current writers. Linda Hutchin is a critic who wrote a book recently, A Poetics of Postmodernism, and she describes several other distinguishing characteristics. In particular, it's reflexivity or self-consciousness, a very self-awareness of what the process is that's going on as the writer uh, writes, and its frequent use of parody. Overall, is the notion that the concept of process is at the heart of postmodernism. It's this concept of process that is potentially the most worrisome to us as librarians. Remember, we heard it first from Harvey Wheeler and Stanley Chodorow. If all is process and there is no final product, if in fact there is no text in this class, just what is our role supposed to be? If the author has been dismissed and reception theory teaches us that the work itself is of far less importance than our individual performance of it, just what is it that libraries do? Some years ago, a couple of decades ago, Philip Sollers, editor of the critical journal Tell Kell, addressed our task directly. Quote, I'm going to quote several postmodernists here, and you have to pay attention. I'm sorry. Quote, it is thus within language that we must pose the problems that concern us and outside the notion of a product. For to the degree to which you valorize the product, you posit the existence of the museum and sooner or later of the academy. You favor a collection of things arrested and frozen in the pseudo-eternity of value in contradistinction to the way in which what we are looking for ought to lead us on beyond all value. Language, not the product, not the museum. This is, of course, a notion hostile to the museum or the library and the product as opposed to the process. It is hostile to the notion of the stable text, the artifact, and the archive. Linda Hutchin, in her more recent book, makes a specific comment on the archive, a term of some interest in the critical theory community. She notes, and I quote, Derrida's famous contention that there is nothing preceding, nothing outside the text, and Foucault's general unwillingness to accept language as referring to any first-order reference, anything, that is, that would ground it in any foundational truth, She goes on, this kind of post-structuralist thinking has obvious implications. It radically questions the nature of the archive, the document, and evidence. It separates the meaning-granted facts of history writing from the brute events of the past. Let's look at what Jacques Derrida himself has recently written about our own activities. It is not encouraging. He published last year a book entitled Archive Fever, a Freudian Impression. Uh, University of Chicago Press, uh, apparently from some lectures first given in London in 1994. His book's focus is on psychoanalytical issues involving the archive of the mind in very Freudian terms. Yet in numerous asides, he suggests that his topic is concrete as well. For example, he refers to technology as it would have affected the development of psychoanalysis. Quote, one can dream or speculate about the geotechnological shocks which would have made the landscape of the psychoanalytic archive unrecognizable for the past century if Freud, his contemporaries, collaborators, and immediate disciples, instead of writing thousands of letters by hand, had had access to MCI or AT&T telephonic credit cards, computers, faxes, teleconferences, and above all, email, end quote. Here he's talking about real records of a real discourse, he goes on, and here perhaps you may share with me a certain schadenfreude as an important mind discovers the stunningly obvious. Quote, 
Electronic mail today, even more than the fax, is on the way to transforming the entire public and private space of humanity. Email is not only a technique, at an unprecedented rhythm, in quasi-instantaneous fashion, this instrumental possibility of production, of printing, of conservation, and of destruction of the archive must inevitably be accompanied by juridical and thus political transformations. These affect nothing less than property rights, publishing, and reproduction rights. End quote. 1994, Monsieur Derrida wakes up and smells the coffee. Jacques Derrida meet Anne Oakerson of Yale. Ken Cruz meet Jacques Derrida. But let's follow his argument about the nature of archives. First, Derrida defines the archive. Remember, his book is entitled Archive Fever. He notes the derivation from archon, the Greek mag magistrate, and goes on. Quote, this name apparently coordinates two principles in one, the principle according to nature or history, there where things commence, but also the principle according to the law, there where men and gods command, there where authority and social order are exercised, end quote. Derrida thus relates the archive fundamentally to issues of power and control, in my view, entirely appropriately. The library, or the archive, represents a set of views as to what culture should be preserved, inevitably reflecting cultural stance at a point in time, affected by matters of social power, funding, librarian ideology, and accessibility of materials to be preserved. Derrida then defines archive fever. First, he makes reference to a Freudian concept of the mystic pad, a means by which memory is conserved in the psyche. The concept contains, says Derrida, its own contradiction, for the idea that specific mechanisms will help preserve memories implies that other memories without such a mechanism will be destroyed. He goes on, and I don't promise this will be lucid. Quote, the model of this singular mystic pad also incorporates what may seem in the form of a destruction drive to contradict even the conservation drive, what we could call here the archive drive. It is what I call archive fever. There is no archive fever without the threat of this death drive, this aggression and destruction drive. There is not one archive fever, one limit, or one suffering of memory among others. Enlisting the infinite, archive fever verges on radical evil. Archive fever verges on radical evil, end quote. Most of Derrida's book is about the psychoanalytic meanings of archives, of memory, and of memory. However, with Derrida's concrete references to real archiving situations in the same text, the, the reference to Freud in the postcards earlier, this reader's perceptions are that we should be worried about his views of real archives and archiving. Such views are challenges to those of us who are librarians. These challenges are reinforced when another critical theorist, Paul Demand, lightly tosses off the incendiary remark Technology burns history, leaving no material residue. Technology burns history, leaving no material residue. Or consider Tom Stoppard's recent play, Arcadia, which I hope some of you have been able to see, either in London or in New York. It played a couple of years ago. Absolutely wonderful play. Uh, I'm going to quote a, the leading man in a moment, but let me give briefly some of the context. Uh, the context we're concerned with is that Septimus Hodge is the tutor to a young girl, Thomasina, who is a mathematical prodigy at the age of approximately 14 or 15 and just coming into her womanhood at the same time. But she is intellectually curious and extremely intelligent, uh, as is uh, Hodge, as is Stoppard. Um, she has suddenly discovered how much was lost in the library of Alexandria when it uh, was burned, and she is devastated. She says, the great library of Alexandria was burned. 
all the lost plays of the Athenians. How can we sleep for grief? And Septimus Hodge, the tutor, responds, by counting our stock, seven plays from Aeschylus, seven from Sophocles, 19 from Euripides, my lady. You should no more grieve for the rest than for a buckle lost from your shoe. We shed as we pick up, like travelers who must carry everything in their arms, and what we let fall will be picked up by those behind. The missing plays of Sophocles will turn up piece by piece, or be written again in some other language. Mathematical discoveries glimpsed and lost to view will have their time again. You do not suppose, my lady, that if all of Archimedes had been hiding in the great library of Alexandria, we would be at a loss for a corkscrew. End quote. How do we respond to such trivializing quietism? How do we respond professionally, professionally to the theoretical undermining of the value of what we do? We should be worried not only about Derrida's views of the potential evils of the archive and demands ready assumption of the disappearance of history, but also about many of the views of works and texts that trickle down from postmodernists like these to a less careful scholarly public. It be can become too easy to dismiss the importance of foundation texts and therefore of accurate citation. It can become easy to lose sight of the importance of the bookish approach to texts developed over the past centuries of manuscript and print. The bookish culture, I say it again, recognizes the importance of fixed texts and the importance of a solid foundation of reference points on which to ground a continuing discussion. Let me hasten to say that not all postmodernism is bad, if I may be so polarizing and crude. A distinction can be drawn between skeptical postmodernism, like that of Demand and Derrida, and a more affirmative postmodernism. An affirmative postmodernism recognizes, on the one hand, that there are no absolutes, that essentialism is a vice, and that the Enlightenment created perhaps as many wrong paths as right ones. We could, if we wish, join William Blake to their number. But for the moment, let me suggest current, such current interesting practitioners as Richard Lanham and Jerome McGann as affirmative postmodernists. They see virtue and interest in plurality and multiplicity and are pleased to find only partial and inconsistent meanings revealed by disparate forms and alternative ways not only of seeing but of being. Uh, three years ago in the talk I mentioned earlier, I spoke about Richard Lanham's important book, The Electro Electronic Word. Uh, Professor Bellinger later kindly characterized it as a book review. Jerome McGann, let me use him uh, as a counterexample to Derrida and Demand. McGann is, of course, the textual editor and romantic and Victorian scholar here at the University of Virginia. In his recent essay, The Rationale of Hypertext, available on the web, he has described the need for a hyper-archive to fully realize the potential of scholarly editing. This is a scholar who values the importance of the texts, but wants to approach them in their full multiplicity. As he says, we no longer have to use books to analyze and study other books or texts. Editing in codex form, he says, generates an archive of books and related materials. Presently, the print archives are becoming too voluminous. What is needed is a hyper-archive, a hypermedia archive. What McGann calls for in editing texts is not simply a critical edition, but a critical archive, for that is the only tool that can provide for the full study of multimedia works. For McGann, the hypertext archive must provide for multimedia from the start, for texts always have visual and sonic qualities as well as intellectual or textual. Blake may be an obvious case, but so are the 19th century poets of pictures, such as Letitia Elizabeth Landon. 
And so, says McGann, are the modernist poets influenced by the type design of William Morris and his 19th and 20th century followers. The hypermedia archive, McGann postulates, is not founded, founded on the fluidity of the individual texts, as one might expect from Sullers or Hutchin or Derrida, but on the fluidity of the links between the texts and on the extensibility and expandability of the texts. McGann edited the groundbreaking new Oxford book of period romantic verse. He is also the creator on the World Wide Web of the Rossetti Art Project, which he describes as, quote, an archive rather than an edition, unquote. It is a collection of texts, critical works, digitized images of paintings, and manuscript pages, and commentaries. One example of a bookish horizon it has been able to escape is the idea of the definitive text, a concept of classical scholarship that McGann claims makes no sense in our more recent experience of multiple fractured texts, such as King Lear, The Prelude, and The Wasteland, uh, Ulysses. His own project shows multiple texts of Rossetti's works and links them at many points. McCann notes that in the end, we can only read one text at a time. That is, in the end, we read in normal space-time, not in any virtual world. That is because our minds are embodied, like the minds of those who created the texts. This is a refreshing practicality from someone whom I suspect finds more to say in the works of Derrida and Hutchin than in the work of, say, George Steiner. As he says... Our electronic tools now allow a manipulation of the mind's creation in such a way as to establish links between texts that we never could before when they were printed works. And in the end, we, we managed to integrate the multiple texts and works into our embodied minds in a narrative mode. This tension of attempting the paradise of perfect multitextual comprehension using our fallen embodied mind is a subject worthy of Milton, who should only be living at this hour. We've, let me recap a little. I've discussed Dr. Chodorow's views on technology. I've alluded to postmodernist ideas on textuality in order to suggest that there are cultural obstacles to research libraries continuing to perform their long-term role. I've noted that there is hope in the work of scholars like McGann, who, along with their postmodern critical theories, still respect the text. Let me now mention, just mention some of the technical problems in the way of maintaining the electronic cultural heritage and then discuss how we can succeed in spite of all these barriers. On these technical matters, I've spoken and written at length elsewhere, so I'm going to be pretty cursory here. Preservation of electronic information needs to be looked at from three technical points of view, medium preservation, technology preservation, and intellectual preservation. The problem, and what is new about preservation in the electronic environment, is that electronic information must now be dealt with separately from its medium. Let me provide an analogy, one which I know you, know, you all will be aware is very oversimplified. If I put a book on a closet shelf and shut the door and leave it there for 500 years, at the end of that time, I can, broadly speaking, open the door and read the book. The object is still whole, and the language is still accessible. For preserving the medium on which information is stored, such as tapes, discs, optical discs, CD-ROMs, and the like, copying to other devices of the same kind is a technique which we know of as refreshing. It's not now regarded as a long-term preservation medium. And that is because we have to deal with technology preservation. It's more problematic than medium decay. We can make discs last for a while, but who cares if you can't read them? Medium decay, uh, uh, the technology obsolescence uh, responds to the, is the description of the rapid changes in the means of recording and the storage formats and in the software that allows electronic information to be of use. 
We need to be aware of technology obsolescence as even more of a problem than medium decay and undertake steps of technology preservation. Rather than simply refreshing, we also need to speak of migration, of migrating information forward through technology stages as they become available and as the old technologies cease being supported by vendors and the user community. There's a third preservation requirement, intellectual preservation, which addresses the integrity and authenticity of the information as originally recorded. The assurance of integrity is the greatest challenge to our bookish culture that has been handed to us by electronic technology. Therefore, medium preservation and technological preservation will serve only part of the need if the information content has been corrupted from its original form, whether by accident or design. The need for intellectual preservation arises because the great asset of digital information is also its great liability. The ease with which an identical copy can be quickly and flawlessly made is paralleled by the ease with which a change may undetectably be made. We properly take for granted the fixity of text in the print world, certainly in the post uh, hand press area. The printed journal article I examined because of the footnote you gave is be almost beyond question. This audience I have to qualify. It's almost beyond question the same text that you read. Therefore, we have that bookish confidence that our discussion is based upon a common foundation. The present state of electronic text is such that we no longer can have that confidence. This is the challenge of the dynamic document presented to us by Stanley Wheeler, Harvey Wheeler and Stanley Chodorow. In fact, there appear to exist methods for identifying a unique document and for authenticating a document as created at a specific point in time with a specific content. The research libraries group is experimenting with digital timestamping, and other techniques using digital signatures, hashing, and encryption have been proposed. What specific tools the library and archiving community will use in future is open to question. However, it appears that we now have available electronic authentication tools that provide generality, flexibility, ease of use, openness, low cost, and functionality over long periods of time on the human scale. But we're not yet out of the woods. You'll remember Jerome McGann asserts the need for a critical archive when doing textual work, not simply a critical edition. The hypermedia archive that McGann requires would be organic, growing, flexible, and modular, and unlimited by current technology. He has given us a good example of what he means with his Rossetti archive, now on the web and from here at Virginia. By its nature, what McGann postulates must be dynamic from its beginning. This presents immediate and continuing problems of integrity and authenticity. We've begun solving the matter of assuring authenticity for static files with hashing and encryption methods. Assuring the authenticity of a, of a dynamic set of files will call on further imagination and more flexible tools. What is at issue is not only version control, which is the simple problem for static files, but core data assurance. Assuring the core data means that different formats of a text are also assured. Versions that have links applied, versions that are marked up, or versions that exist as manipulated or prepared by different engines, for example, different word processors, or PageMaker, or Adobe Acrobat, or an HTML. We even want, let us not limit our requirements, we want assurance that a bitmapped page image matches the formatted text extracted from it. These tools are not in sight yet. At one point, McGann describes the hypertext archive as a multiplicity of editions supporting the authority of the work as understood by their analysis. He compares this to, quote, the fabulous circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere, end quote. This circle, of course, is God, as described by Vaughan and Traherne and Sir Thomas Brown. If we face fully our preservation task, 
and liken the cluster of additions around the work to the fabulous circle, the question arises, how do we preserve God? This is a larger task than I wish to set for research librarians, but perhaps it indicates both the magnitude of the task before us and the necessary hubris required to take it on. Taking on the full preservation task in the electronic environment requires, first of all, that we draw on our professional sense that this is what we are here to deal with. The distinction of the research library and of the research librarian is that we are concerned for the long term. Other libraries and other social functions, such as bookstores and newspapers, join with us in the access and distribution function. But no other agent in society has the responsibility we do for making sure that what we hold remains available in the future. But given the obstacles I've described, both cultural and technological, how can we make sure we succeed? As in so many other socially important activities, success will be achieved by organized planning and group action. Serious research libraries in the United States and indeed around the world need consciously to act together to preserve both the print and electronic record or it will not be preserved. I'll describe a bit of the kind of consortial activity I mean by using the Research Libraries Group, RLG, as a case study, both in what is needed and what is no longer relevant. RLG, as most of you know, is based in the United States, but has developed an increasingly international membership in the last few years. As my first job in librarianship, I had the good fortune to work at the Research Libraries Group from about 1975, that is, in its earliest formative period. At the time, it was a radically new kind of consortium, founded by only four research libraries, those of Harvard, Yale, and Columbia, and of the New York Public Library. As a result, there were the usual charges of elitism, which today sounds somewhat quaint. I recently sought out some of the public RLG statements from those early days. There is a notable consistency of rhetoric through this period. It is striking how relevant it is today, almost word for word, and also how distant it is from the current RLG operational mode. The early statements emphasized the necessity to transform the operations of research libraries by taking account of technology. At the time, they intended the creation of the online union catalog. That particular task was accomplished years ago. It remains true, however, that research libraries must transform themselves. Not only have our operations remained generally an automated version of what existed in 1975, but the surrounding technology has advanced so far that even more radical transformations are necessary necessary if we are to meet our readers' needs for preserved and authentic documents. Research libraries have a distinctive mission. Not only do we preserve information for future use, we collect materials no one else does and provide services needed by a relatively small constituency of scholars and researchers. Cost recovery is not possible for the research library except at the margin. The marketplace as such will not support fundamental research library activities of acquisition, organization, access, and preservation. This holds true for services provided consortially as well as individually. And while bibliographic utilities must demonstrate their usefulness through the willingness of users and libraries to support them financially, few such utilities can nor should be expected to be as effective as needed based solely on per unit cost recovery. What research libraries need to do will cost more than can be provided by selling services. In the near term, this means that a consortium thinking solely in terms of revenue streams will lead itself away from the fundamental mission of research libraries. 
The early and lasting RLG success was in establishing the bibliographic system, Arlen, as the underpinning of all the other valuable program activities. But the establishment of Arlen itself was not achieved on a cost recovery basis. It took investment by universities, by some more than others, and by foundations, each of which saw value to the scholarly community if the task could be achieved. The research library community must now emphasize that our mission is to preserve and provide the human record in print and electronic environments both now and in the future. We must then argue for the funding necessary to achieve this mission. The funding must once again come from our own institutions and from thoughtful, far-seeing external funding agencies, whether private foundations or government offices. It will not come primarily from fee-for-service products. Our research libraries need a partnership more than a vendor. The partnership must provide useful services at reasonable costs, but its principal task is its own transformation. My aim in this talk has been to emphasize the importance of information preservation for research libraries. I began by describing the bookish culture that evolved in the 12th century, which I believe we need to preserve, along with new cultural tools. I've cited some eminent skeptical postmodernists in describing the cultural challenge facing us. It's foolish to deny, to deny that their critique of literature, art, and society is persuasive, yet it is not required of us that we give up our cultural responsibility at the same time as we may adopt their critique. It is a kind of affirmative postmodernism that I advocate for research librarianship in adopting, in confronting the greatest challenge to the continuity of the human record since Homer. What is called for is a kind of high wire dance, a juggling act on the edge of the abyss, a meal of ice cubes prepared in a boiling cauldron. It is the preservation imperative that is particularly important for this audience of practitioners in the art of the long term. In research libraries, the consideration of lengthy periods of time is more important than in other library fields. It is our particular responsibility to see that information is preserved and organized for use not only by our generation but by succeeding generations. There is no other professional group dealing with the combination of all these issues authentication, security, and protection, as complicated by the need to provide organized access to what is preserved, and as further complicated by the length of time in centuries that we as research librarians contemplate. No one else has this specific responsibility. It is what we do. If we do not do it, no one else will. Some may draw back from the apparent complexity of the technologies that support electronic information. But these technologies should present no difficulty to minds that can deal with the duodecimo collations in half-sheet imposition. Those of you capable of describing just how Compositor C affected the text of the first folio are fully adequate to the task of setting standards for electronic preservation. Many of us work with email, listservs, databases, and the World Wide Web, and are very aware of the technology and increasingly aware of how we need to manage it. And it is managing it that is necessary there are technical people aplenty who can grapple with the bits and bytes of these issues. We librarians give them proper direction. We've seen this happen, by the way, as leaders in the Internet Engineering Task Force have turned to the library community for assistance in building network discovery and retrieval tools. The need is for leaders to articulate the requirements for the electronic preservation of the human record and to see that our profession makes it happen in spite of the cultural countercurrents. That's the professional requirement. And it is the people in this audience, you, who are the most capable of assuring that it does happen. There's a kind of back-to-basics quality to our now confronting the new cultural and electronic environment. To grapple with the ephemerality of electronic information is to grapple with the more abstract question of why we are librarians. 
that's a question I hope we've come some way in answering tonight. Thank you for your attention. I assume you won't permit questions. My God, where did you prep? I hope you will all join the speaker for a drink in the first floor Alderman Library Staff Lounge.